This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material going back to 2008, subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. You'll receive your login immediately. Do you want proof that we will survive physical death? Do you want evidence that our deceased loved ones are still with us? And how you can ease the incredible pain caused by grief? Do you want to learn what science and medicine now believe about life after death? Do you want to know how to be courageous in our lives and have new results? Tonight's special guest is Sandra Champlain, and she will help us truly understand creation and the nature of life. Right now on Veritas. Sandra Champlain is a top graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. She owns the Kent Coffee and Chocolate Company in Connecticut and travels with world-class race car teams, providing hospitality in the American Le Mans and Grand Am series. However, her fear of dying and skepticism led her on a 15-year journey to discover the undeniable proof of life after death and the reason we experience grief. After the death of her father, she created How to Survive Grief, a free audio that was quickly heard by thousands worldwide. 
Armed with this powerful information that has reduced pain and saved lives, she realized a book must be written. In January 2013, We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death, was published. It has become a number one bestseller in the United States and Canada, and it has been rated one of the top grief and motivational books on Amazon. And to learn more about Sandra Champlain and buy the book, visit sandrachamplain.com or wedontdiebook.com, which are also linked at our website. And directly from somewhere in Massachusetts, I'm privileged to welcome Sandra Champlain to Veritas. Hello, Sandra, and welcome. Hello, Mel. That is very sweet. Somewhere in Massachusetts, in the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> That's right. So I'm glad that you have not uh, lost electricity yet. Me too. I'm in a nice warm place. So thank you for letting me be a part of your show today. My pleasure. We don't die. This is this is one of those topics that a lot of people can't get enough of. They write to me all the time asking me to discuss more life after death topics. We don't die as skeptics discovery of life after death. That's a very powerful title because Uh the word skeptic, because I've always been a skeptic. There's nothing wrong by being a skeptic. It's it's the filter to accept reality. On this show, we don't want to believe. We want to know. First of all, let's talk about your, your history, your story. What led you to discuss this? Yeah, it's interesting because when you read my bio, I'm thinking, what is a chef doing who owns a chocolate shop, even talking about life after death. And the important thing I think for everybody to know is I'm just a regular person. I'm a person who had fears, just tremendous fears. I had lost um, some relatives. I had lost some pets. And, you know, life goes by. And I think we all have moments, Mel, that we our life might not be going great. We look at the stars. And then it's like our humanity comes in. You know, who am I? What is my life for? What happens after I, I die? I mean, these are questions I asked myself. And for some reason, it appeared to it within my being as this incredible fear of dying, it just in, in overwhelming. And so that led me very secretly on a journey to find out if I, Sandra Champlain, can come up with any evidence just to rest my own fears. And there's a real good reason for my subtitle being a skeptic's discovery of life after death. Because if you knew me 15 years ago, first of all, I'd be the, (laughs) I wouldn't be someone listening to your show, I'm embarrassed to say, because I was so adamant that there was no life after death, that people who even talked about it or talked about ghosts or talked about spirits or talked about psychic abilities, um, people that went to a medium, that these people were all crazy and I wasn't going to know any of them. So for me to be the one on this journey, I think I'm the perfect person to write this book because out of my findings, I calmed my fears of dying. I know I'm not ask, answering your question <laughs> directly as the answer, uh, you asked me, but I just I think it's important to know that I th- that I am very human, and it was fear that got me on my journey. That's okay. Ten years ago, I would not be listening to this show either, <laughs> <laughs> even with me and the microphone. And this oh, is funny. the interesting part. We have uh, similar backgrounds. We were discussing this before. Take me back to a time when you probably experienced life after death yourself. You had a, a situation when you were a youngster, didn't you? That I uh, experienced life after death. Well, a near-death experience. 
Um, I myself, I know oh, you've read Oh, wait my a second. It's probably the introduction. It was Dr. Siegel, probably. Oh, yes, it was Dr. Siegel. I, yeah, yeah, I have the great and wondrous Dr. Bernie Siegel who wrote my foreword. And I know we have a little time on this interview. And if I can just share one of the miracles, and I, I think. Um, Please do. One of the amazing things is I think when we kind of get tapped into this fact that we don't die, that we are these creatures here on earth that are so much more powerful than we know, and we start getting in tune with who we are and, and, and following our beliefs and our passions, like miracles show up. So it was a complete miracle when I met a publisher and for the very first time I had the courage to speak about, you know, that I wanted to write this book and in the journey, this publisher said to me, you need someone to write the foreword and you need it, it to be a, someone very well known, famous. And I'm thinking, I don't know anyone famous. I know race car drivers because you know my job is a chef, but not in this field. And so out of all the people that are authors and famous out in the world, the publisher says, I keep hearing the name Bernie Siegel, Dr. Bernie Siegel in my brain. And he said, do you know who that is? And you know, my eyes just lit up. 30 years ago, uh, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer and he had been given three months to live. And he started working with Dr. Bernie Siegel in Connecticut. Dr. Bernie was one of the very first who did the kind of mind over body healing. I mean, he, yes, he wasn't a surgeon and oncologist, but he also believed in the power of our thoughts and our beliefs uh, healing our bodies. And my dad, he went into remission. In fact, better than remission, the cancer mysteriously disappeared from his body. And my dad lived another 30 years and credited Dr. Bernie Siegel for his being on planet Earth for those 30 years. My dad was very religious. He went to church every day. And of course, you know, we hear about Jesus every day from a man that attends church every day. But even more than we heard Jesus's name, Mel, my dad would talk about Dr. Bernie Siegel. So from my publisher's mouth to say this name, and now me myself, I'd only heard stories of the great Bernie Siegel. Um, but I sent an email. I, you know, how does one reach someone famous? And I found his website and um, there's a button that says contact Dr. Bernie. So I pressed it and I wrote an, an email and, you know, Dr. Bernie remembered my dad and, um, and, and the foreword is just incredible and talk about miraculous, right? So I think, yes, I'm the mouthpiece for the book, but I think, I'm not the only person that wrote it. I think it's just a book that it's time has come. You know, you might have heard this, that all human beings share three common fears. And one is the fear of being alone. One is the fear of failure. And the other is the fear of dying. I mean, they're so prevalent. That's why so many of your listeners want to hear more about life after death, because the fear is so real. But I believe that when we can embrace and believe that we don't die, our loved ones that are past are still around us. I believe that to my core. So there's no chance of being alone. We're never alone. We just may not be able to see them. There is no chance that we can ever fail because anything we experience while we're living here on earth, it's used for education for us, education for our soul. So you might call it failure, but of course, you know, 
Thomas Edison failed over a thousand times inventing the light bulb. Is he a failure? No way. And then the fear of dying, we don't die. You know, our bodies will disappear. We will certainly go through a, a mourning, a grieving process. It's very difficult to lose a loved one. But to know that you, Mel, me, Sandra, you, whoever our listener is listening here tonight, um, that you go on, your personality, you will go on. I mean, it's an amazing way to live to be able to, um, I think we always have fears, but to be able to justify them and realize that we can live past our comfort zone, experience more, and really have an enriched life because of it. In chronological order, I'm always amazed speaking with people who, for example, like you, a, a successful businesswoman, chef, you have your, have had your own business for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with me. I used to be in the business world. All of a sudden, we converge into this area, the non-physical reality. Even, I forgot who said that. It was Tesla who said that when science starts studying the non-physical reality, we'll advance much, much faster than we do now. When right. all these things converge, I want to know in chronological order, what led you to this belief now? What happened along the way that made you a believer? Because this is so difficult to prove. Yes, exactly. And I think the best way is, like you say, in chronological order. And you, very much like me, I think we're the, you're the perfect person to have your show. And I'm the perfect person to have this book because you know, we're looking at things from the skeptical's point of view. Um, like I couldn't possibly believe this was real yet. That fear was so deep that I secretly started exploring. Um, is there anything to be fearful of? And naturally the first place that I started was with my own religion. And I don't want to say I'm overly religious. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I grew up Catholic, but just to have faith was not enough to calm the fears. Mentally, yeah, I should have been able to, but I didn't. So I, then I went on to study other major world religions. And again, most religions believe in life after death. So comforting to an extent, but yet again, not good enough. Um, it was the first time I started realizing the world of Buddhism and the um, there's a great book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying and the author brought up this whole point of reincarnation and you know Mel I really liked that I thought you know you see these children that may only live a couple years couple months like is that their only chance in this lifetime you know it doesn't make sense so I started um, reading some books on reincarnation, and there's a doctor named Ian Stevenson who's deceased now, but he had studied and documented over 3,000 cases of children who had memories of being human beings, um, you know, prior, prior, prior incarnations, and would tell their stories of who they said they were, and these people actually existed. So all of a sudden, I started thinking, wow, there's there's something in this life after death realm. And again, very secretly, I did this because, you know, I pretended to still be bashing people that went to psychics and mediums. And, you know, I don't believe in any of that. Well, I, you had said in the beginning that I cook for race car teams as a job. And one of the events, I had the radio playing in the background. And all of a sudden, like I would hear a song in my mind 
And then it came on the radio. Well, skeptical Sandra said, well, the DJ must have said the name of the song. Well, I paid attention to this. And over the course of maybe the week that I was there, things like that kept happening. Um, I had met a woman who was helping me cook at this particular race. And she told me she had been adopted. And she said to me, um, I forgot what she had cooked, some really delicious fish recipe with some different spices that I'm not aware of and things. And I, and then she said her mom taught her how to make this recipe. And I said, oh, which, which mother taught you? Was it, you know, Mary or was it Sue? And she looked at me and so did the other woman that was in the kitchen. And she said, Sandra, I never told you their names. And Mel, they, they were both deceased. And I'm thinking, well, how, how, I mean, you know, for me, who is trying to justify that that stuff isn't possible to start having these experiences. And I started, um, there's somebody had given me a deck of what's called angel cards by Doreen Virtue is her name. Um, and each card, you can shuffle the deck and you can pull out an inspirational card. And my my skeptical mind thought, well, this is a nice gimmick because, of course, you can always pull out a card and find some way to apply the cards to your life. Um, but eight out of the nine days after shuffling, I kept pulling the same card, you know, and that was at that race. Um, and the music card was the card that came out. And I started having these weird coincidences with the cards. So I wanted to do a little research on the author of these cards. And I looked and... Um, Dr. Doreen Virtue, she's a, even though that's her name, that is her legal, her real name that she's born with, uh, she was a psychologist and she is someone who, in her mind, had started hearing voices and getting these premonitions and she it's very funny when she tells the story because she says you know I used to prescribe medication to people that would hear voices so I was not going to tell anybody I'm now hearing voices but she got an image of herself uh in like a future carjacking and she blew it off that that's got to be just her imagination well sure enough that carjacking took place uh just as her mind had told her it would and she started really paying attention and so she went into the world of mediumship she went into the world of angels she she talks quite a bit about um, angels her website is angeltherapy.com uh, she talks about ascended masters and all these people that we can connect with in the hereafter and on her website and this is me back in 2005 there's an invite. Are you interested in mediumship? Come take my class on medium mentorship. Um, it was several thousand dollars, well more than I had. Um, but of course, I had the MasterCard. And I, I, I remember this moment of just thinking, you know, I, like I filled out the application, but do I press the send button? Do I actually sign up for this? And I thought, well, Sandra, you don't ever have to tell anybody. But if there is proof of life after death and what her claim was mel is that after attending my weekend you will somewhat be someone who can accurately tell the deceased people around others and everything in my mind was screaming scam can't be not possible but then she had a money-back guarantee and i thought it's worth checking out and so i flew very discreetly to spend a weekend in Laguna Beach, California with Doreen Virtue and about 20 other people. And can I tell you the story of what happened when I got there? Because this, this was the, the giant aha moment. I had, you know, 
I get very excited, Mel, so sometimes I don't shut up. So just feel like jumping in any time okay. or interrupting me. But that's just part of me. I get very excited. Um, so I take this course in Laguna Beach and I show up in oh, it was a conference room at, at a hotel out there. And there were about 20 of us, mostly women, few men in the group. And I would kind of categorize everybody as in the world of the spiritual or woo-woo, you know, the women with the long flowing gowns and I don't know, I don't know, people that look like mystics. And then there was me in my khaki pants and my um, polo shirt, you know, I didn't feel like I fit in at all. And Doreen Virtue is a beautiful woman. And she said, if you're felt called here, and it's for a reason, and you're really supposed to be doing this, and you're supposed to be making a difference with people. And um, she says, I want to tell everybody how mediumship is done. And in a nutshell, she said, basically, that we all have the ability to tell um, the loved ones around others. Now, like playing the piano, some people are gifted at it. Some people really have to work at it. And she said, you know, when we can quiet our mind and quiet the inner chatter and, you know, get into the present moment, that's the link where this happens. And she says, we're not going to do a medium reading right now, but I want to just give you a demonstration of how we do it. So she says, everybody take a partner. So I say to this woman. I didn't never saw her before. I said, oh, you want to be my partner? Sure. So she says, sit knee to knee. Okay. We'll hold hands. Okay. And she says, now, if we were to do a real medium reading, she says, I want, I would want you to imagine that there's this invisible energy that's connecting your hearts and that you're in a very safe space and do your best to try to be in the present moment. And, you know, your mind's going to say this isn't real and this isn't possible. So just try to put that out of your mind. And she says, I want you to ask just in your mental mind, is there a deceased loved one that wants to come through? So she says, just play with me now. Just pretend you're a medium and just ask. So I did this. And, and so she says, in your mind, your mind will always come up with something because we're invoking our imagination right now. But she says, if you were a medium and if you were seeing somebody, make up somebody. And she says, basically, all you do is you tell your partner the story. Who do you see? You might get the instinct if it's from the mom's side or the dad's side. You might see what they look like. Some people are more gifted uh, with their auditory. They might hear a name or, you know, you might just get some things. And there's usually a profound message that comes through. So she says, let's just do this for fun. Everybody take turns. Invent a person behind your partner. And let's just pretend we're mediums. So Mel, because she gave me that... Um, I could play with this. I wasn't really doing it. So I invented a man standing behind my partner. I told her that his name was Jan, that he had blonde hair and blue eyes, that I felt it was her grandfather on her mom's side. He had really windburned skin. He had a big gap between his front teeth. Um, I saw this image of, uh, of like a, being a fisherman. I saw a fishing boat. I got the name Denmark in my mind. So I'm just telling her this elaborate story about her grandfather named Jan who worked on a fishing boat and what he looked like and he died of lung cancer and he wants you to tell your mom that he's sorry that he never spoke the words I love you while she while he was alive. And so I was done with my side and of course my eyes were closed when I was imagining all this. 
And I just turned to my partner. It's like, okay, your turn, you know, happy-go-lucky Sandra. And this woman, there's just streams of tears going down her cheeks. And why that is, is because her grandfather's name was Jan. He was a fisherman in Denmark. He died of lung cancer. He fit that description. And he had never told his own daughter that he loved her. And Mel, how in the world did that come out of my mouth and my imagination? So that is the most pivotal moment for me in my whole journey. And of course, there's more because now I wanted to start. So if that's possible, what else is possible? But if that happened in that moment, yeah, there's still skepticism, but there's something very real about this. And so I spent three days at this course And was I right all the time? Not even close, maybe 30% of the time, maybe a little bit more. Um, People would turn to me and see some of my relatives and name them exactly and details exactly. One lady saw my grandfather, knew his name was John, that he walked with a cane, that he had always had this big German shepherd by his side and very specific things. But the times we weren't right, you know, Doreen would mention, well, that is our imagination because these people come across as it looks like our imagination. It's it's very hard to distinguish, you know, without lots of practicing and, and stuff. So that was the biggest aha moment that had me say, this is real. And for a, a short time, that fear of dying had just gone away. I mean, it was, wow. So I don't know if this was an addiction or not, but there was this part of me that wanted more, like if that's possible, and I already knew about the guy with the reincarnation, you know, what else is possible? So I wanted to study more and I read um, some books by Brian Weiss. Uh, of course, he- that, that started me, by the way, in the early 90s, Brian, Dr. Brian Weiss. Yes, a, just genius and wonderful man. And, you know, so many of the people we've learned from never believed in this themselves to begin with. You know, Dr. Raymond Moody, who coined the phrase near-death experience, you know, he wasn't into this world. Um, Brian Weiss wasn't. He was hypnotizing people, trying to help them through whatever problems going on in their life, only to, um, you know, actually be able to connect people with past lives and things like that. I mean, just like this miraculous world opened up. And it's interesting because... um, Being such a skeptic, you know, I realize uh, that, and you might be the same way or who's ever listening. Why do you call yourself a skeptic? Because I I can't believe something unless I can prove it. And I think it's even more than that. I think I grew up in a family that told me, you know, this is true and this is false. And I grew up knowing, never even questioning But that people that believed in mediumship and psychic abilities, you know, that's all just a scam. Those are con artists. I wasn't even willing to accept the fact that something like that could be real. I I, I know I've gotten my yeah, I've gotten my heart broken lots of times too. I think as um, young people, we grow up with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and all kinds of wonderful things, only to grow up and have. some of the things that we believe in, we find out are not the truth. And it's like, 
you know, I've had a lot of heartbreaks in my life. And if, you know, and then there's always the phrase that we hear growing up, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is, you know? And then I think too, we all have this voice going on inside of our minds. I mean, we might be attractive. We might have everything going on. People might be jealous of us. I mean, you have a radio show and you're famous, Mel, and Sandra's got a book. Oh, well, she's got to be doing well. But each one of us right here listening right now knows that when we wake up in the morning, we have this voice of negativity. You look in the mirror, oh, something wrong, definitely. Um, we have our fears. We have this this negative voice. And I, in, inside my book, I call it the voice because it's it's not real. It's It's our ego, whatever you might want to call it. But that's the part of us that's gotten hurt so many times. That's the part of us that doesn't want to believe. I, but it, but know, isn't that a survival mechanism? To an extent, I mean, if you're faced with, should I jump off this bridge? Um, <laughs> and it says, no, well, that's a survival mechanism. But if it's a case where it's, say, it's Valentine's Day, you feel a tremendous amount of love for a person and you really want to tell this person, I love you. And which could bring your relationship to a whole nother level. Yet, when you were a little kid and say the first girl that you asked out on a date and she laughed at you, nobody's ever going to want to be with you, she said. And somewhere that little voice inside believes what the little girl told you is the truth. So you might be a full grown 40 something year old man and you know, you're faced with your Valentine's Day and here's a moment that could be pivotal and change your life. But the voice tells you, don't say anything you know deep in your heart you're not good enough. And so survival mechanism, no. The little voice wants to keep us safe, not taking chances. Um, you know, your life might stink right now because you're not in a romantic relationship, but that ego, that part of us uh, knows that, well, you might not be happy, but at least, you know, you're safe. But I think, Mel, where the real value in life comes is to step through that fear, to know that, yeah, if it's a life or death situation, listen to the voice in your mind. But the best part of life is when we can step through our fears, be vulnerable, know that there's nothing ultimately that's going to hurt you. And we both know that to have be in a loving relationship, you need to be vulnerable. You need to be honest. You need to take that that risk. Absolutely. And, and I think that, in my opinion, there are two voices. There's the the subconscious mind, the instinct that kicks in in a microsecond, immediately after you think of something. But then again, quote-unquote logic or the voice or ego pops up and it makes you question, oh, I shouldn't do that because I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not going to approach that girl because she's going to say that I'm not good enough. Right. So, and also, you know, when I think of people like you and I and, and many of our listeners whom I met in person, many of them are, are success, successful people in life, but they don't talk about the these subjects, these strange experiences, no. because they have, they've, they've had many of them, but they fear the ridicule. What do you tell them? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, one of the scariest moments of my life was telling this publisher that I wanted to write a book called We Don't Die. Um, I, I didn't, I need to fill in one of the gaps is um, I went and I'd love to share more about 
learning remote viewing, electronic voice phenomena, and some of these other really cool things that have convinced me that we don't die. Um, but I had collected all this evidence for myself. I was not going to risk my friendships or what people thought about me to kind of come out publicly and say, now I believe in these things. So I kept it very hidden. My dad was diagnosed with cancer, which ended up killing him um, in 2010. And he, he died May 11th of 2010. And the last five months of his life, I relocated to Florida, was by his side, um, one of the scariest times of my life when you see someone you love shutting down, fighting an illness, uh, you know, we tried everything, <laughs> medicinal and also new age, anything I could think of to try to save my dad. And and he ended up dying. Well, during that time, um, I didn't know too much about grief, except for I know it hurts really bad when we lose someone. But I didn't realize that there's so many arguments that can happen between family members, lots of fighting. I didn't understand the more we love someone, the harder the pain, the more severe it is. Um, I didn't understand, you know, I felt so low, Mel. I felt, uh, you know, I've never felt I don't think depression or suicidal or anything like that, but I was in such a low place that I could understand why people feeling that way would like naturally want to end it all because it was brutal. So uh, after dad died, um, I really hit an all-time low as a human being and sad and just miserable. And any of us who've had a loss um, know what that feeling's like. And it was like the little light bulb went off in my head. Like, I wonder if this is all a part of grief. Of course, my memory was terrible. I, I mean, there were so many things. I wanted to be alone. I shut out the world. And God forbid somebody got into my kind of a closeness to me and said, how are you, Sandra? Well, I would repeat the whole story of everything that happened to dad. And I mean, I was like autopilot, like I needed to tell my story over and over and over and over again to whoever would listen. And gosh, that's so much not like me. And so I thought maybe it's worth investigating this world of grief. So I started just digging around. I bought a ton of books on grief. I, I dug around on the internet for audios and videos and, and things. And um, I found somebody did some research as to how our brain chemistry changes when we grieve. And I thought, now that's really interesting. I mean, there's actually neurotransmitters in our brains for feel good and for different things. And when we grieve, we lose a lot of the healthy neurotransmitters. So, oh, that makes sense. That's why there's all the pain. Oh, well, that makes sense. That's why there's all the anger. Well, what also surfaced is our memory and our perception of the occurring world and our communication skills are all regulated by some of the neurotransmitters in our brain. And if we don't have them um, or we don't have enough of them, what we see happening in our world 
and how we store it in our brain could be two totally different things. And God forbid you're in a relationship with someone. You I mean, you always hear about people fighting over the will, right? Or fighting. And I came from a very close family with my siblings. Never would we think we'd ever fight over if one of our parents died. And the fights couldn't have been nastier between my siblings and I. And I kept thinking, geez, these people are out to get me. And of course, they're probably thinking the same thing about me. Come to find out, you know, these, like our our brain functioning is so poor that there's a whole bunch of um, this kind of thing that comes up. There's almost 40% of family members will write off another person after a loved one dies. Brothers not talking to siblings. Um, I think it's 80% of couples uh, get divorced if a child dies. Um, Tons of relationships that end. And then I found out that there's this really high level of suicide when people lose a loved one. And grief is not just when we lose a loved one. Uh, Grief can be felt if you lose your job, if you lose your financial status, if you're in a relationship and that ends plenty of reasons why we grieve you know we we're um for lack of a better term mel you know we're addicted to our life as we have it you know the everything's firing in our brain we have our home we have our comfort we have our loved ones if one of those things changes if we lose one of them we're no longer getting our uh, fix of how things should be. Um, I, I kind of relate it to someone who is uh, grieving. It's like somebody who's going through a withdrawal from a chemical dependency. You know, um, love is, for lack of a better word, it's it's addictive. When we love someone, I mean, we know what that feels like. And then if they're gone, especially if they're dead and they're not there anymore, you know, our it, it feels horrible. Long story short, no, I was not ready to tell people about life after death, but what I did want to tell people about is grief. I found some things that eased my pain, helped me understand, um, helped my communication skills. I mean, so many things. And, you know, I'm not a whiz on the computer, um, but I did have a digital tape recorder and I uh, wrote wrote out everything I knew about grief and I recorded this 70-minute audio and it's called How to Survive Grief. And I bought the domain name survivegrief.com, still exists, and people can go there and download my audio. So I just wanted to be a good Samaritan and think, you know, if this helped me, it could help someone else. I made a few posts on Facebook and at the time... I don't know, maybe I had five or 600 friends on Facebook. In a matter of just months, over 3,000 people in 15 countries had downloaded it. I don't know who was telling who, but it started traveling fast. And people started writing me, Mel. They started writing me about how my words gave them understanding, gave them hope, eased their pain, helped in their communication with their their relatives, help them understood, uh, understand what's, what's going on in their life and why they're feeling the way they are. And one of the guys I cooked for at the race team, um, he had come into my kitchen and he had said to me, his wife had left him for another man. And he was, and he was, at the end of his ropes, and I truthfully didn't know how at the end of the ropes he truly was, 
but he says, I just, I just, I can't live like this anymore. And I said to him, I said, I know I wrote this audio about grief from the death of a loved one, but I said, maybe it'll help you. And he reported back to me, Mel, that he was so depressed, he was going to end his life. And he said, from listening to my audio, he said, I understood what I was feeling was a part of grief. I took your recommendation to get out of it. Um, it helped ease my pain. And now he's happily engaged to a woman. I mean, he, like he got his life out of it. Well, then I started getting emails from complete strangers that said the same thing. And it hit me, uh, you know, clear as the nose on my face that I, there is something within that audio that not only helps ease pain and give hope, but literally saves lives. So then it became the almost moral responsibility. How do I get this out there? And the big moment came that I, you know, talking to me today or listening to me today, I'm very lighthearted. I'm all about having a great life and love and taking chances and new experiences and very positive. I don't want to go down in history as being the grief lady. And um, certainly grief is part of my conversation, but it's also about living life while we're here. And I thought, I don't want to have a grief book. That's not who I am. Plus, how many people really realize they're grieving and would buy it anyways? And all of a sudden, it hit me. How about all that life after death stuff, Sandra? How about if you become courageous and you can get to a place where you say, you know what? Some people are going to argue with me. Some people are going to laugh at me. Um, but knowing that mankind's biggest fear is dying, what if I create a book called We Don't Die? Tell my story. Tell every bit of my journey of why I believe that life after death is real. And every bit, you've read it, you know there's a lot in there. But then the audio about grief has turned into chapter nine. And it's all in there. People, every, but every human being is going to have to deal with grief. They can read it whenever they need to read it, but it's in there. And then the rest of the book, as you know, is how to have a powerful life while we're here. So way back when, you know, we were talking about fear and my skepticism and things, but looking into the eye of a publisher and everything inside of me said, run. But I said, no, this is the book I really want to write. And I told him the, the name of it, what it was going to be about. And I tell you, I thought, Mel, that he was going to laugh and say, there's no way. And in turn, he looked at me. He says, you think you can write something like that? And I said, I think so. He says, have you ever written before? The answer was no. He says, can you write something just so I know what your writing skill is and, and everything? And Mel, I imagined a human being, a man who was really skeptical, sitting in front of me. And I decide just to tell him my story. And that's kind of how We Don't Die reads to people, that I am just telling you my story. I'm not trying to push anything on you. Um, but to know that most of us, even the publisher, people are so afraid of what people will think of us if they know that we're into this kind of thing. People, you know, we all have a, such a fear of what people will think of us that we never say. I, because I have the guts now 
to kind of come out and say, yep, this is what I believe in and this is why, I have had more people tell me that they've believed in this too. They've just never wanted to tell anybody because they thought people would think they're crazy. I have one of my race car drivers that I cook for who is now a um, well-known television announcer. And he he saw, because I have a little... Uh, table at the racetrack with a display on about my books. It's very interesting how I have in the middle of a food tent, a big sign that says, we don't die. But he asked me, he says, what's this about? You know? And I, I tell him, he says, oh, and this is cute because so many men have repeated these exact words, Sandra, I've never told anybody this, but so because of the book now, they're willing to tell me people that have had near-death experiences people that have had like supernatural experiences and this one race car driver told me that back in the 70s he had um, been in a near fatal car wreck and he went into the hospital and he actually flatlined on the operating table and he said he like they say classically, you know, he rose out of his body. He could see his parents and his brother praying for him. And he was greeted by his grandparents in the most beautiful place that he's like, I just want to go with Graham and Gramps because it was so great. And of course, Graham and Gramps were dead to everybody else. But he said it was so peaceful, so great, felt so great. He says, that's where I wanted to go. But he says, and I looked and there's my mom and my dad and my brother. And he says, I actually felt like I had a choice to make. So he said, I chose to live. And so he woke up and is, of course, he's in tremendous pain, had to have all kinds of plastic surgery and surgeries done. But why I'm telling you this story is one, because of my book, he had the courage to now finally tell somebody what he saw. But the other thing is if you were to trace this man's life from the late 70s till now, this man has been a champion race car driver in many different series, winning track records, going faster than anyone else has gone. Now ultra successful. And he said the reason for his success is he said, I didn't fear death. And in not fearing death, I knew I had nothing to be fearful of in life. So he said on that racetrack, I could push my foot, my foot down on the pedal and go faster than everybody else. I could, you know, take more risks because he said, all I knew is I'd end up with Graham and Gramps when it's time. And so when he told me that story, it's given me this fuel that, yeah, it's great if we can believe in life after death. And it's great if we believe our deceased loved ones are with us. I think that's so important. Yes, the, it's important to know about grief and to be able to move through it when we do have a loss. But we all hear about these people that die and they have all these regrets, right? We hear those stories all the time. What would it be like to live life like that race car driver? Now, not necessarily am I promoting go 200 miles an hour around a racetrack, but in those moments when you might be fearful of saying, I love you, in those moments when you might want to make a career change, in those moments when you feel this fear come up, um, but you know that 
gosh, if I can just step through that fear, something else great might be possible. What would it be like for someone to have their final moments, whenever that may be on earth, you know, when they say we have our life review, and to look back and say, wow, I really went for it. You know, I accomplished a lot. I traveled. I shared love with who people I could. And I, you know, I really got my money's worth out of living here on planet earth. And then I thought, that's good stuff. Well, I recently I came across an article where somebody interviewed a lot of people who were dying. Mm-hmm. And the summary, pretty much a common denominator, the people who were dying were saying all the time, I wish I would have said, I love you more. Yeah. I wish I would have taken more chances and more risks in life. I wish I could have traveled more. And this, this, what you're talking about, it, the voice, it lessens when we don't listen to that voice. It lessens the hesitation. The, the fact that many people believe in and there's no no death. It lessens the hesitation. It allows you to live your life at the fullest. But going back to grief for a second, I remember back in 1994, I was living in California. I was mountain biking, and all of a sudden, I I received this thought. And you know, people like me never, never talked about these non-physical realities. Mm-hmm. But it was almost a thought, my father, a thought from my father, something was wrong. My father was never, ever sick. And I decided to return home, and there it was, a voicemail from my mother saying that he had a heart attack. Oh. And I thought he had never been sick. How did I know that I needed to return home to listen to that? And the message right. said, you, you should come back home. And this is thousands and thousands of miles away. And yes, he passed away. And that was my very first moment of really grieving. And you in the book, you include some very, very, dare I say, sad statistics, but you say that Mm. over 1 million people commit suicide every year due to grief and depression. Yes. Over 27 million people take antidepressants every day in the United States. And I know for a fact, because I deal with another health show, that number is skyrocketing, even to children now. Wow. And also, there are more than 155,000 deaths every year in the world and over 113 million people experiencing the pain of grief every day. If we were to accept that grief is part of life, is part of the, the process, and grief does not stay with us, it's transitory, we can overcome that. I think a lot of people would see life in a different way, wouldn't they? Yeah, and not only that, I don't have all the answers, nor do I pretend to, but you may be the same way, or you listening right now might be the same way. When we look back on our life, we've had the ups, we've had some downs, we've had pleasure, we've had pain. And would you trade in being the person you are today to be someone else? And most of us can say, well, no, actually, I needed to have that painful thing happen because I needed to grow. I needed to get fired from my job and I didn't think that I could even survive. But now I own this business and I'm helping other people. I would have never in a million years thought that the thing, and that was dad's death, that brought me the most pain in my life has now turned into the best thing that has happened in my life because you know this yourself. When you can make a difference in someone else's life, it feels good. I think um, 
to be of service, to give to someone else, however that means is the best feeling another human being can have is to make a difference in someone else's life. And for whether people have read my full book, whether they've looked at my website, I also have the website wedontdie.com and there's a lot of free information on there. Whatever that is, if I can make a difference in someone's life, very, very awesome. Um, One woman wrote me about her mother and she said that she had wanted to give my book to her mom after the dad died the mother said i don't want it don't i don't believe in that don't leave that here in my house well the mother hadn't left her house in five months she was married for 46 years grieving something terrible and the daughters decided to just leave it in the house (laughs) which is funny i mean it's it's not but they said, you know what, mom can throw it away, but they just felt so certain that it, they ne- that mom needs to read this. Well, uh, who knows the story from the mother's point of view, but obviously at one point she did read the book um, because she had her daughters write to me and say that it was the thing that got her out of the house, got her claiming her own life, got her uh, taking line dancing classes and just realizing that her life doesn't have to be stopped because she lost her husband. She very much believes her husband is still around and that, you know, her life while she's here is for a purpose. And so out of the most painful things can come something good. And if, you know, we if we are to look at Life being something that we learn lessons, we grow from, we get stronger. Um, You know, right now you could be going through a very tough time, losing a loved one, losing a job, your health might have changed, your finances may have changed, and it doesn't feel like there's any good explanation. But to be able to move through it, do the best you can, come up with some new ideas, be in relationship and communication, ask for help, whatever that is, at some point in your future, you can look back and say, wow, I actually did need to go through that for where I am today. So it's very difficult in the grieving process to try to, you know, and I'm not saying that somebody had to die or it has to hurt this bad, but if we can look at it from being like responsible for, yeah, this happened this way, what can I do to be stronger or to make a difference for another as opposed to being a victim, you know, and stopping our own lives, whether metaphorically or or really, um, and using it to empower us to live a better life, you know, that, that would be a huge gift. Absolutely. And I think there's a saying, great beginnings are disguised with painful endings. And I have to say that some of the best experiences I have ever gone through in my life began when something bad happened before. So now that I see that, I give it a different meaning. Mm -hmm. It was just a lesson. It was not a mistake. It was not an error. It was just a lesson. Once we learn from the lesson and we step forward and overcome the voice or the ego, whatever you want to call it, that's what takes us to the next level, which has taken you to the next level to be able to fulfill your mission of alerting people that grief can be overcome, that there's no life. But heaven, you know, we grow up, we are products of our environment. In our case, we grew up Roman Catholics. 
Some people who may live in the Middle East are, you know, they're Muslims. Uh, there's Jews, there's Buddhists. Everybody has that flavor of what they learned. In our case, we think of heaven. What is, where is heaven? I smile right now because I, I'm taking in all the, um, some of the scientific facts that I've brought in. Not that there's scientific proof of heaven. You might be thinking that. Um, but I, I want to just say, I believe that around us right now, every single one of us um, is this invisible space. I mean, it's invisible to our eyes, um, but maybe we can pick up on it psychically. Um, and this might be hard to imagine, but this is like a scientific thing that we are all made up of energy. You know, this is physics and biology and things, if we were to put a tiny little camera inside one of our molecules, um, you know, we got the protons, neutrons, the electrons, the atoms bouncing around, things like that. But every one of those things is is empty. It, it would be invisible. There is just, we are all made up of this energy and it's just vibrating strings of, of energy. I Best way I can explain it with my <laughs> uh, education in this, in this world. But there Around us now, I'm here in Massachusetts, and I'm sitting on my couch, and of course, my headset is plugged into my computer, but my computer is not plugged into anything. It's got its battery, and somehow, Mel, we are able to be connected, um, and there is this invisible world of radio waves, of the internet, of television signals, of GPS signals. And, you know, our cell phones could connect right now without being attached to a cord. Now, that all might sound very basic, and you might be listening and thinking, well, yeah, so what? Well, <laughs> Albert Einstein once said, we can look at everything as if nothing is a miracle or everything is a miracle. And 200 years ago, if you were to tell someone, first of all, that we wouldn't be driven around by horses, that we would have this horseless carriage, and then the technology would come about that there'd be this thing called the radio. And inside this moving vehicle, there would be voices and music that doesn't come from instruments or from a human being. It's coming out of a box. You know, like that would blow people's minds. Like, Wow, I mean, that's, I can't even imagine it. But now our minds are used to it. Well, I think, and this is my impression of where heaven is, if I am able to quiet my mind and connect with that woman's deceased grandfather and see him like he's standing right there, or you're able to get that, whatever that moment was when you were able to call your mom and know about your dad and something was happening, you know, that's like a psychic hit. I think heaven is this place that is happening around us. I think when our body dies, uh, the body itself is gone, but our energy lives on. Kind of like if a piece of wood burns in your fireplace, yeah, that piece of wood is gone, but the energy still exists as heat, or a puddle that might evaporate. You know, that pool of water is gone, but the water's just changed form. And so heaven is invisible to us, but I think it's very real, just like 
you know, like I said, our wireless internet signals are invisible to us and they're very real. And for that voice that we keep bringing up, um, it really wants to fight on this because even my own voice is saying, do you really believe this, Sandra? Is this maybe not? Is this what you're talking about? But hundreds of years ago, people fought to their death that the earth was flat. They knew it was flat. There wasn't anything anybody could tell them to change their minds. It is flat. Of course it's flat. And then, of course, Magellan circumnavigates the globe and, you know, know, it's actually round. And so it takes time, you know, it takes books like mine Mel, shows like your show, everybody else who's out there that can start getting people that may have had that fear, you know, do I believe in this? Don't I? I like, I like to study it, but I never talked to anybody to, to be able to follow your passion and for yourself, discover those things that makes you realize that, oh yeah, there's a whole nother world going on here. I mean, there's some really miraculous things in our world. And when we can start living like, gosh, if that's real, everything else can be possible, you know, as opposed to, you know, our given mind is going to want to throw it away, say, no, it's not possible. But, you know, just remember that, you know, we all thought, well, we didn't, but that the earth was flat and, you know, conversations can be changed. And why, why would you uh, want to believe in anything like this? And that's a very personal answer for so many people. If you tried to push this on me 15 years ago, Mel, there's no way I could have even uh, listened to your show or I wouldn't have never even have bought a book like mine because I wasn't ready for it. But as part of our journey being human, I think it's our, our, I don't know, gift of being human is to be able to um, really live the best life we can. And, you know, there's a great story that um, Dr. Jacques Dallaire told me that I include inside my book. And this paints a good picture. Sometimes it's easier to uh, paint a picture in the mind to understand a concept than just me saying some words. If you can remember the story I told about the aquarium, um, there was this big aquarium that had all these big fish swimming in it. And the aquarium owners wanted to obviously have all kinds of fish swimming in the aquarium. And so they would put these little fish in with the big fish. And well, what happened is the big fish kept thinking dinner (laughs) and the big fish would eat the little fish over and over and over again. That kept happening. Well, you know, the aquarium owners wanted other fish in the exhibit. And so some genius, and I, you know, I don't know where new ideas come from, but somebody thought this. They said, you know, what if we put the little fish inside of a jar and suspended a whole bunch of these jars inside the aquarium? What would happen? So certainly they do this. And well, the big fish are like, ah, oh, dinner, you know, and they go right after the little fish. Well, what happened is obviously they would bump their snout on the glass and they were not able to get to the little fish. So enough times of trying the same behavior over and over and getting the same result, you know, the big fish stopped trying. You know, there's no meat in there, so why even bother? Well, after a couple of months, the aquarium owners actually took the little fish out of the jars and let them swim with the big fish. Now, 
one might think the big fish would say, aha, dinner, but they didn't. They knew to their core that they couldn't get to the little fish, so they no longer tried. So now certainly the exhibit is a big success because the big fish are swimming with the little fish. But I like to tell this story because when I talk about the voice or when we talk about the voice and we talk about, yeah, maybe it's the first time you ask somebody out and they you get rejected or, you know, if you raise your hand in class and you think you've got the best answer and the kids laugh at you, well, you might grow up being afraid to take chances, being afraid to open your mouth, you know, all those kind of things, you know, and unfortunately, we are swimming in this world where we can eat all these little fish, but because of our past, we believe that we cannot. And when you can embrace, not that just the message of we don't die, but when you can embrace we don't die, it may, it, you know, then you start thinking, well, then why are we here? What is my life for? And you start getting into some of these fields of, say, remote viewing or electronic voice phenomena or near-death experiences or whatever you're passionate about. You start learning more about that. Maybe if it's even quantum physics or, you know, something like that. But this new world starts coming into play that you'll have new thoughts, you'll have new passions, you'll have more joy in life, things that you thought you could never do before, suddenly you see access to them. And I think when we can have, there's something we want and we can go for it and we can achieve it or if we can have a a new experience or something like that, oh, it feels great. And that's where the excitement is, is in life. You know, it can bring our quality of life now into such a great, great place. Absolutely. And we have to take a one and only break. When we come back, we have so much more to discuss with Sandra Champlain. But before we take the break and you tell us how to buy the book, let me just share a thought, Sandra, that I've had for many years now, and I want to share with everybody. Bear with me here. I've always thought from a very young age, when I look up at the night sky and knowing how infinite our universe is and the billions or trillions of planets in our our galaxy alone, What if we cannot get there from here because our bodies are meant to be for this, quote-unquote, stop planet Earth? But when we abandon our bodies in what we call death, what if our consciousness, spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it, travels to another place and experiences what that new location has to offer? And that's how we travel. Just a thought that came to mind, and I wonder how many of you listening have thought of something similar. What a big universe, and what a shame, and what a loss that we cannot experience that. And maybe, just maybe, this is the reason why. But how can people buy this book? Oh, make sure when we get back from the break, we talk about remote viewing. Okay, because that's a bit about that. You can buy the book at your local bookstore. You can buy the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Wherever you like to buy books, it's available, Kindle, Nook. My website, um, easiest one to get to is We Don't Die, because it's easier than spelling my name, wedontdie.com. And you can actually listen to the um, that grief audio for free. You can download the first chapter in the foreword by Bernie Siegel for free. Just see if you like where I'm going. Um, but it's available wherever you buy books. Folks, don't go anywhere. We Don't Die, a skeptic's discovery of life after death. So much more when we come back in segment two. This is Mel Fambergas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. 
Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. This is Sandra Champlain, and you're listening to Veritas.